This podcast is produced and issued by Morningstar Investment Management, LLC, a registered investment advisor and subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. The content is intended for U.S. audiences only. Individuals featured in this podcast are employed by Morningstar, Inc. and its subsidiaries. This includes, but is not limited to, Morningstar Investment Management, LLC and Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services are registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Stay tuned for additional important disclosure information at the end of this episode. The amazing capital markets. Portfolios that aim to do good while investing well. Improving investor outcomes through lower fees. These are a few examples of what we're thankful for this year. This is Simple But Not Easy, a podcast about investing and behavioral science by Morningstar Investment Management. We have a two-part Thanksgiving show for you, featuring the bright minds here who illuminate investing every day. Today, we're talking about what we're thankful for and what we would be thankful for if it were to happen. But we're going to start by looking at why it's good to be thankful. I'm joined first today by Ryan Murphy, head of decision science at Morningstar Investment Management and a frequent podcast guest. Ryan, thanks for being here today. Of course, my pleasure to be here. And uh, Ryan, uh, what, what are you thankful for this holiday season? Um, my health, my family, and mathematics. Math- mathematics. Probably not everyone's top choice for, for thankful. Well, Why are you it's thankful in my for... top three, right? Yeah, um, right. <laughs> so I, I enjoy... You can say my math is not, you know, not that great. <laughs> I couldn't count to three appropriately there. Uh, I find it's an exceptionally useful set of tools for thinking about how people think, how they reason, and how they make decisions. I really like what I do, and this is a large part of this quantitative analysis. So, yeah, that's partially a joke, but not entirely. And, you know, I know it can feel good to give thanks, but but is that the the only sort of benefit there? Are there other benefits to, you know, being thankful, to giving thanks? I mean, as our sort of resident psychologist, maybe you can weigh in there. Thanksgiving is one of those time periods where people do kind of stop and evaluate what they're thankful for. And I think when they do that, they're not thinking about what happened in the last day. Because Thanksgiving is once a year, they tend to take a little bit longer time frame, and that's useful. As I think back in the past year, and that by itself is just a useful way to reorient people's attention. What are the things that have happened that I'm thankful for? And that reorientation of thinking in terms of much longer time scale, I think is valuable because it helps people focus not in the minutia of day-to-day activities, but on the broader overarching goals, what they're trying to accomplish, what their values are as a person. And I think that's useful for people to revisit from time to time. But I think, you know, for lots of our work here, when we talk about investing, it's the same sort of thing, trying to push people away from thinking about returns in the day-to-day sense, but thinking about their long-term vision, their views uh, over the long-term, and how all of that investing process fits into their overarching goals. How can we be better at giving thanks and be more grateful? So it's this idea that people become accustomed to how things are going for them. And so when you ask them how they're doing in terms of like how happy they are, they tend to get really used to whatever's been going on in the recent history and they become very accustomed to that level of happiness. So there can be massive life events and changes for the good or bad, but people tend to adapt their feelings of happiness and gratitude relative to what they've just experienced. That's an interesting thing by itself, but it's also worth knowing that about ourselves because the sort of possibility that people can get on something called a hedonic treadmill. They think, I'm not happy right now, but I'll be happy if I get this. And then they get this, but then they become used to this new this. And then there's something else they want. And so there's this ongoing process, uh, an unceasing process of trying to strive and achieve for things that they think will make them happy, not realizing that it's just this process of gain that's really driving it. And that can be a, a nasty cycle to get caught into. 
Certainly, you can see that with investors as well. That you know, once you reach a certain you know dollar level, for example, that you'd be happy and, and be ready to retire or something like this, right. and then it just kind of keeps going right. because you've talked to someone else who has more money, or you know, they've talked about exactly. something that makes you think that you know, really, I need to keep going. Yeah. So it's that idea of you know, I want more returns versus I want enough, and I think that that latter, this idea of enough, is more compatible with happiness because the this seeking, the, the ongoing seeking of greater, greater returns that can uh, lead to disaster. And how do you get to that point where you say, I know what's enough? Right. So along those ideas, the idea of my goals. So what the reason I'm investing and saving is I'm trying to achieve this particular goal. And you mentioned this idea of, you know, people comparing themselves to a benchmark or maybe, you know, they're, they, a neighbor down the street at a cocktail party mentioned something. And you have to remember that that information is always going to be filtered. They're going to tell you about their curated successes and so on. And if people use that as the benchmark for what they're trying to achieve, they're going to have a very skewed worldview. And I think that's something that also can lead people to have unrealistic expectations. And I think that's a source of unhappiness. And discontent and uh, leads you to not be very thankful. Yes, absolutely. And it sort of, it spawns a sort of behaviors that we try and talk people away from in investing, too much churn, trying to chase returns, other sorts of things. And so I think this idea of refocusing people's attention on what their goals are, what are reasonable expectations around those goals, and then staying on track to those ends is a valuable way to not only promote financial outcomes, but also to promote happiness. Ryan, it is always interesting to have you here. Thank you so much. Of course, my pleasure. My next guest today is Brian Huxtep, who's Senior Portfolio Manager and Co-Head of Target Risk Strategies at Morningstar Investment Management. Brian, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. How long have you been at Morningstar? 16 years, almost 17. Fantastic. That's, uh, you've, you've, you've seen a lot in that time. I've seen a lot of growth. Uh, I think the firm was 600 people when I started. So a little bit larger now. 6,000 plus yeah. now, yeah. And Brian, can you just talk a little bit about what you do here? I'm a portfolio manager. I work with Funds of Funds. I've done uh, that same role since 2005, and I really enjoy it. I've worked with uh, passive funds and active funds. Today, I focus primarily on passive. And what are you thankful for this year? Over those years, over those 16 years, I have seen fund fees drop a lot. Uh, in particular, I work a lot with ETF portfolios, and there's been a price war going on. There's been a lot of press, a lot of headlines for at least five years. I think it's been in the press. And so prices have come down precipitously to the point where uh, we've seen a couple products with zero fees, at least the way the, the government requires fund companies to report fees, they've managed to get that line item down to zero. So I'm very thankful for that. It's really helped us get the fees down for the portfolios and improve outcomes. That goes right to the bottom line for investors. Can you give some sense of that, both generally, like, you know, around the market for all ETFs, and then also in your own portfolios, you know, to what extent have like sort of the average fees come down? Sure. Um, the last time I looked a couple weeks ago, uh, I noticed there were 121 ETFs with fees of less than 10 basis points. Wow. And I'll be honest, yeah, 16 years ago, I never would have thought we'd see that. But the price war has been good. There have been new entrants into the marketplace, and they're really competing for, for dollars from investors. And size, as the popularity of ETFs has grown and grown, it's enabled those fund companies to reduce costs because there are economies of scale. As you get a bigger and bigger pot of assets in your mutual fund, you know, unless you're very, very greedy, you should be able and willing to lower the fees for the marginal dollar. So the popularity of ETFs has been one of the big benefits there that's helped, helped to reduce fees. 
So I, I hope that continues. Yeah, yeah. Because as you said, it benefits investors ultimately. Yeah, so um, 121 ETFs today, and there are a number of active mutual funds where we've seen fees drop also. It's just a, you know, in response uh, to the competition, um, they've had to drop fees. So even if it has been primarily among ETFs, so we've seen some of the headlines, there have certainly been knock-on effects for active mutual funds also that I think they've been pressured to reduce fees. Among ETFs, uh, are there areas that have seen greater fee compression than others? I would assume sort of the mainstay kind of S&P 500 sort of uh, ETFs would be more so than more niche assets. Is that right? That's correct. I think when I look at the ETFs that cost one, two, three, or four basis points, they're almost all, almost all, uh, large cap U.S. ETFs. Um, You're not going to see much strategic beta there. Those ETFs tend to command a premium that Explain I, what you mean by strategic beta. Uh, strategic beta ETFs. Um, don't use simple market cap weighting. So your typical index and your typical ETF use a market cap weighted methodology. And Meaning so, the largest companies are the ones that get the most of the investor's dollars. And as the, the company becomes smaller, it gets a smaller percentage of that, that investment. That's correct. And here in Morningstar Investment Management, that's not our favorite way to invest. We don't love that kind of momentum necessarily. As valuation-oriented people, um, you know, we certainly do keep an eye on alternative weighting strategies. And uh, you know, we are active within our asset classes also. So we're not just using one big market cap um, weighted ETF. Certainly not. We decompose markets into smaller chunks and we overweight asset classes accordingly. So even at the highest level, if you could just buy one big ETF that represented the market, we don't think that's a good idea. We think investors can do a lot better. Because like you say, we, we want to buy assets that we think are undervalued rather than this cap weighting system that essentially rewards the, the companies that have grown the most. And it's, as you mentioned, this sort of momentum, uh, systematic uh, yeah. uh, risk uh, factor, which is essentially the companies that have grown the fastest, the idea is that they will continue to grow. But of course, yes. at some point, it, it always stops. It always stops. And I don't want to sound like a commercial for strategic beta. I've been frustrated with some uh, fund providers that strategic beta prices haven't come down as quickly as we'd like to see. Um, we don't have many strategic beta products in our portfolios today, primarily because the fees tend to be uh, much higher than market cap. And I don't think that has to be the case. Um, it's not, in my opinion, the case that they're that complicated to build. So like I say, I've been a little frustrated, yet um, you know, we do use them occasionally and certainly keep an eye on them. And prices for those products also have come down. I just One of the things I wish for, I wish strategic beta prices would come down faster. Like there are some great products out there, but I can only think of one off the top of my head that has a single-digit price tag on it, nine basis points. All the other ones are much, much higher than traditional market cap products. And I don't think that'll be the case, hopefully, in five or 10 years. So you'd be thankful if those strategic beta products did come down in price. You had mentioned earlier, Brian, about zero fund fees. Is that, uh, is that a, a big win for investors? Any price reduction is a big win for investors. But the zero fee ETFs that I've seen out there, I know of three of them, uh, they're temporary fee cuts. So investors need to be very cautious. The three that I'm thinking of, they're fee waivers in their prospectus, it says that they will most likely go away in May of 2020 or June of 2020. They have two different dates. So it's almost like a teaser rate on a mortgage or getting your cable for a low price for 12 months, but then you know it's going to jump way up. Mm -hmm. So I know 19 basis points and 29 basis points are the fees that I remember were in the prospectus, and that's a lot. So to go from zero to those high fees to get just six or seven months of a low rate just, to, in my mind, really isn't worth it. So I would say buyer beware on, mm -hmm. on those zeros. Some of them are, you know, 
just kind of sale, temporary sale prices. And there are other active funds. I know Fidelity is a provider where when I read the prospectus, it doesn't say that it's a temporary fee cut. So I think that's the one mutual fund provider where we've seen truly zero fees. Uh, but those aren't is sold that even true platforms. though? Is that I mean, are, is there really it, such a thing as a zero fund fee? No, it is not true. If you read the prospectus closely, which I have, um, they still pay commissions on trades. They're paying for uh, actuarial things. So there are no truly zero, truly zero fee products out there today. It's just the the kind of the headline number, the way that the government requires you to to calculate the prospectus fees. Uh, Funding companies have managed to get those to zero, which is fantastic for advisors. I mean, investors, but it's not truly, truly a no-cost product at the end of the day. Right. So so investors and, and their advisors should be watching out for some of these things. If something seems too good to be true, check it out, read the prospectus. Especially those waivers. Those, I, those I think, are, I'm going to put those in the bucket of shady even. So as much as I really am excited about that, you have to be careful. There are some shady operators out there, and temporarily lowering your fee from 29 to zero to me is shady. Very good. Well, Brian, thanks so much for being here. I uh, appreciate your time. Thank you, Drew. Yep. My next guest today is Dan McNeela, who is Senior Portfolio Manager and Co-Head of Target Risk Strategies at Morningstar Investment Management. Dan, thanks for being here. Sure thing, Drew. Dan, can you first tell us how long you've been here and, and talk a bit about what you do? Yeah, so I just finished my 19th year here at Morningstar. And as a senior portfolio manager, my team implements target risk strategies. That means we build a range of strategies from very conservative bond-heavy portfolios to aggressive equity-heavy portfolios with three portfolios in between, sort of balanced funds. And we look for opportunities globally across fixed income and equity markets. And you also do some research on the, uh, the research team's That's right. So part of that job is to do asset class research. So everyone on my team participates in the asset class research, be it fixed income or equities, everything from energy infrastructure to emerging markets bonds. And then you have been on the show to talk about energy infrastructure and more recently on our show on energy companies uh, themselves. That's right. Yep. So welcome back. And what are you thankful for this, uh, this holiday season? Well, I'm thankful for having so many cost-effective ways to implement interesting investment ideas. I guess that'd be my my broad statement. And I think that uh, stretches from the growing importance of ETFs and the ability to identify individual countries that look attractive to us based on our valuation-driven approach to individual sectors that we might be looking at. And as costs come down on the ETF side, that you know just makes it even more compelling of a way to implement the investment ideas. And I think it connects more broadly to the idea that you know to be an equity investor and buy shares of individual company stocks and have this kind of owner mentality where there's so many great companies out there that are publicly available for investors to save up not too much money and invest directly in them and become you know essentially owners of the company and benefit as those companies grow and have earnings and you can uh, you know kind of sit back and passively clip the coupons earn the dividends or watch the company grow its revenues and um, I think it's just a kind of a, a special time in history when it's just been so cost effective to be an active investor in this kind of environment. Dan, you mentioned that ownership mentality. Uh, Of course, we are sort of, you know, investing on behalf of of the true owners of those assets, which are, 
you know, the individuals who are investing through advisors. But I, I think, you know, what you said may strike some people as, as being somewhat high level, but, but I think just, you know, to pause almost in awe for a minute and consider, as you mentioned, just the amazing breadth of outlets or investment, uh, you know, receptacles that are, you know, out there from companies that are large and in a sector like energy to small, you know, almost mom and pop organizations that are providing maybe one product that then, you know, is, is part of some other company's, you know, value chain. It really is you know, somewhat startling to think of all of the many things out there and that we are able to, even as individuals, sort of access them as an investor and, and to, as you said, like participate in their success. It is. And I would add that it's probably never been a better time in history to be an investor in terms of access to information. I think we take for granted a lot of the regulatory and legal compliance factors where a lot of information is made publicly available to investors now. A lot of data is available and there's so much uh, richer library of different information sources you can get to really understand what's going on at these companies and these sectors and these industries and, and get a better feel for how well your investments are going to be looked after by company management. And there's there's a relation there, right? I'm, I remember I in a previous life, I was a journalist at a newspaper, and I was speaking to a portfolio manager who had just set up his own shop in Aberdeen, I believe. And, you know, he had said that, like, look, you know, I, I don't think that any global active manager should charge more than, you know, X basis points because, you know, it used to be that you had to sort of, you know, climb all over yourself to get this information and to be, you know, an informed investor. And now, with the World Wide Web, essentially, and, and other ways of accessing information, it just pours in. It's, it's almost more about trying to prioritize what to read and, and what to, to listen to rather than going out and trying to find the information. Yeah, I think that's true. And uh, I think you talk about, you know, active managers setting up shop. And when we talk about ETFs being so cheap to um, hold and so easy to purchase, the advent and the increasing popularity of ETFs has really put a lot of pressure on active managers to justify the fees that they charge. And we know here at Morningstar so well about how um, high fees detract from returns and can actually make a decent strategy a poor investment if the fees are so high that they're taking too much of the return potential out of that strategy. So I think the fee pressure provided by ETFs and the influence in the active manager space and open-end mutual funds to bring fees down, again, just makes them more appealing, more attractive assets for long-term investors. And I want to uh, tease out something that you, you said earlier as well about just the sort of breadth of ETFs um, that, that cover you know, asset classes around the world. Can you talk a bit about how you and your team have taken advantage of those in your portfolios? Yep. So we have a, a global asset allocation research effort here at Morningstar, and we pair up our teams in Chicago, London, and Sydney to and task those teams with forming small teams of asset researchers to investigate different asset class niches. And these, again, can be European financial stocks, or they could be Japanese technology stocks or Korean semiconductor companies. And we can do this work on a very uh, narrow basis, looking for the best risk for return opportunities globally. 
And more and more now, we can invest directly into those opportunities by investing in ETFs. And uh, that's something that we hadn't typically done on my team before because we had previously just selected active managers and invested in third-party mutual funds to get kind of broad exposure to more than one asset class at a time through an active manager. And now we're able to more narrowly target our opportunities and hopefully provide a, a more robust, higher quality portfolio that has different return drivers built into it. And am I right to say that it's been especially important in, you know, sort of the current market environment where we see a lot of, especially the major asset classes as being overpriced? We are concerned, broadly speaking. Uh, you know, it's uh, I think it's something to celebrate as an investor when we can lo- look back on the past 10 years worth of returns and see that U.S. equity returns have been so great for a decade now. And obviously, uh, 10 years ago, we were starting from a pretty low point with the global financial crisis where stock valuations were depressed. So at a time for Thanksgiving, I think we can be thankful for the great returns that have been delivered by U.S. stocks. But I think once that is said and done, we need to start looking forward as investors and say, what are the next 10 years going to look like? And where we sit, it's hard to believe that the next 10 years are going to be anywhere near as good for investors in U.S. stocks as the past 10 years have been. And again, with a a global opportunity set for us, the great returns we've achieved in U.S. equities is kind of a call to say maybe it's going to be something else for the next decade. Maybe that's somewhere in emerging markets. Maybe it's European stocks where, say, the macro headwinds look stronger in Europe. There's bigger drags from a GDP perspective. But oftentimes, that's where value investors find their best ideas when there's a lot of negative news in the headlines. Stocks are depressed because... The environment doesn't look attractive at the moment, but if you take a long-term mindset over the course of several years, if you buy long-term assets at good prices and you wait for the situation to get better, we find that more often than not, you're rewarded for that behavior. So something to be thankful for in the future as well. Dan, thanks so much for being here. Sure thing, Drew. My next guests are Cindy Galliano and Michael Stathakis. Mike is an associate investment analyst at Morningstar Investment Management, and Cindy is head of product. Could you each uh, start by just telling us how long you've been at Morningstar and uh, what you do here? Sure. I'll start first, if you don't mind. I've been here at Morningstar for 13 years now, always in a capacity of within the investment management group and as head of product, responsible for our investment strategies as our products that we offer in the marketplace, as well as our digital products, such as our turnkey asset management program or our TAMP in the U.S. Very good. And that is a global role. That is a global role. Yes. Very exciting. And Mike? And Drew, I've been at Morningstar for about three and a half years now. I started as a um, part of the Morningstar Development Program back in 2016, and I've been a part of the Investment Management Group for just under a year as an analyst covering our ESG, ETF, and active passive portfolios. Very good. Thank you for that. And Mike, what are you thankful for this holiday season? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, being uh, involved with the ESG space, I'm very thankful for the growth in ESG investing. I think it's great that companies are not only returning value back to shareholders as they've always done, but also you know starting to think about how they impact the communities around them and how they can make just a positive impact to society as a whole. It also gives investors an opportunity to look at investing from a different lens. So instead of just looking 
uh, to see, okay, what's the best investment opportunity? It gives people to invest in what they're passionate about and what they believe in from an environmental, social, and governance perspective. And I also think the rise in ESG investing overall is going to give more opportunities for other investment types to be ESG. For example, fixed income. In the last year or so, I've noticed a lot more asset managers paying attention to that space and a lot more products being launched, giving us as an asset allocation manager more opportunities to invest in ETF and active uh, fixed income managers. So, Mike, do you have a sense of what the impact of ESG investing is sort of writ large, uh, you know, across across the investment industry, what sort of changes, impacts are coming as a result of investors moving into these sort of ESG-focused funds? Yeah, absolutely. I think the biggest impacts now are the company level and specifically the equity side of the business is, I don't want to say pressuring, but encouraging companies to think about, you know, their business models from not only this generation, but future generations to come looking at, say, oil companies and how they can be more sustainable with how they create energy in the future, things like that. And if I were to be thankful for something next year, maybe something that I would look forward to is maybe the standardization of the reporting that these companies are doing. So right now, MSCI, Sustainalytics, a lot of the ratings agencies, it's difficult for them to ascertain the difference between some of the companies within the same industry because, you know, they can report on whatever they want to report on. And it'd be great to have a standardization process to say, hey, here are the metrics that you want to report on from an ESG standpoint. And it also make our jobs easier as investors to determine, you know, what are the things we should be focusing on and the metrics we should be looking at to determine whether a company is sustainable for the future. And it seems like, you know, things are always happening quickly in mm-hmm. ESG that there's, you know, so it seems like we might be hopeful that some of those changes might come quickly. Although it, it does seem that change doesn't necessarily happen in a coordinated way all the time in ESG. I mean, you just look at the sort of definitions around uh, around ESG investing and a lot of times, you know, major players in this space, everyone sort of cares about the same things and yet uh, there doesn't seem to be a lot of, lot of alignment. How might that change? Yeah, I think... That's going to mainly be, like I was talking about earlier with the reporting standards, but you know, we not only need this to develop uh, regionally, but it needs to be a global effort. There can't be a different standard in Europe versus the U.S. because we're not going to be able to compare a European financials company to a United States financials company. So it needs to happen globally. And, and also something that I don't want standardized would be the actual ESG rating. So although it'd be great to get a standardized data source so that everyone's looking at the companies from the same lens, I, I don't want to go the same way that some fixed income rating agencies have gone. And the correlation with a lot of the credit rating agencies is like 1 or 0.98. It'd be great to get diversity of opinion and ESG ratings, but a standardization of the underlying data behind that. Mike, do you invest your own portfolio in an ESG sort of way? I don't like specifically think of my portfolio as an ESG portfolio, but I absolutely have some sort of bias towards ESG factors. I think when I'm looking at companies that will be around for the next 10, 20 years, absolutely I'm going to look at the companies with the highest you know, sustainability ratings versus ones that, that are laggards in that space, for instance. Right. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, so I wanted you both to be here uh, at the same time because we're on the same topic, of course, because 
Cindy, you were very instrumental. You led the the push for launching ESG portfolios from Morningstar uh, Managed Portfolios this year. So I assume that's something that uh, that you've been very thankful for in 2019. Yeah, I really am. And like more broadly speaking, I'm really thankful for the contributions Morningstar has made to shine a light on sustainable investing, whether it's the portfolio level sustainability data and ratings an investor advisor is able to see in our software, or whether it's John Hale's research and insights into trends and needs in the marketplace, which he's shared in this podcast as well. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah, totally yeah. right. Yeah. Really thankful for what Morningstar has done to provide transparency and thoughtful research on the topic. Specifically, as you mentioned, within our investment management group, I'm thankful for our ESGS allocation portfolios. <laughs> These have been really well received by our financial advisor clients and their investors. And uh, in case you're not familiar with them, our ESGS allocation portfolios are really these core investment solutions. Really, all the underlying investments consider the environmental, social, and governance factors into their decision-making and portfolio construction processes. And so we really take the best of what is available. And as Mike had mentioned, there's so much growth happening in this space right now. But really, uh, well-respected firms in the industry in terms of asset managers, so we're able to pick from uh, mutual funds and ETFs that really all focus on uh, ESG factors into their portfolios and offer these to our financial advisors. And what was the philosophy there? Why did we launch these ESG funds, portfolios rather? Sure. We really uh, actually had the requests and demand coming from our financial advisors and their clients. And so we really recognized not only in terms of what Morningstar was early on to catch on, uh, at least in the U.S., was really uh, the need to, as Mike had mentioned, really get the data and research out there and really define the criteria. And we saw advisors, our advisors, wanting this as well. So it, was, it wasn't necessarily a tough decision, but really how do you go about it given the lack of standardized reporting, as Mike mentioned. And the way we thought about it was there's definitely a preference, definitely a preference of our advisors and their investors to be able to offer some type of sustainable investing solution. And this was our effort. We have many more ideas to come. Hmm. Um, and so this is just the first foray into uh, sustainable investing for us. Yeah. And, you know, I have to say that a major reason for this podcast existing was the fact that we were launching ESG portfolios and the, the you know, the first episodes we did were around that. So there is a, a connection for sure between uh, our ESG portfolios and Simple But Not Easy. Cindy, when you were preparing for launch, was there anything, did you learn anything new about ESG investing or investors or advisors? Anything that surprised you there? I think in terms of what Mike had mentioned before, the uh, lack of standardized reporting or the amount of discrepancy or interpretation that could happen, company by company, industry by industry, et cetera, that was a little bit eye-opening to me from that standpoint. But also the other aspect, too, was the fact that as we did our research, there was always these myths and there tends to be a perception that it's only millennials and women that are interested in these types of portfolios. But in terms of who's been investing into our portfolios, at least, and what even Cerulli and other research has shown is that there are a broad array of investor types, whether it's baby boomers. In fact, uh, Gen Xers as well are, are the ones that have shown quite a bit of interest in, into these types of portfolios. So I think that was a little eye-opening as well. 
Yeah. One thing that surprised me was that we've had some research, you know, John Hale and his team have published, and I think others as well, that the performance basically isn't necessarily, you know, worse for ESG funds. I think that was uh, something that surprised me there. Exactly. Well, thank you both for being here. It's uh, been a pleasure having you today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Drew. Very good. Well, that's the end of part one of our Thanksgiving episode. Come back next week for part two, which will feature Thanksgiving from more of our investment staff at Morningstar Investment Management, including what I'm thankful for this year. For Simple But Not Easy, I'm Drew Carter. Bye for now. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of publication. Such opinions are subject to change. No Morningstar entity, including Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services, shall be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the content presented. Morningstar makes no representation as of the completeness or accuracy of the information presented. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.